1: Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on TV. Terms and restrictions apply. ¶¶
2: to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. I made it an extra long introduction today. We've got six listener questions to answer. There's theoretical podcasting partners, COVID concerns, international versus club managers, Jesse Marsh sadness, a whole bunch more. With me to talk about those things. Normally, I would say the man with all the answers. Since there are two folks with me today, joining me is a man who has some of the answers. It's Glasgow Graham. Graham, how are you doing, buddy?
3: (laughs) I mean, some of the answers is is a good way to... Uh, describe me, I guess. De- definitely don't have all of the answers, so yeah, that 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 accurately
2: describes me. To look well. <laughs> I appreciate that. How is my uh, city pronunciation? Because that is one of the ones I always get anxious about.
3: In terms of Glasgow, yeah, okay. Uh, say it again, Glasgow. Yeah, that's 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 better than Adequate? at least ninety-eight point five percent of Americans. I have to say, Glasgow, Glasgow. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> and Edinburgh, <laughs> or Glasgow, like a like cow, <laughs> Glasgow like a glass cow <laughs> All
2: right, i promise not to do that we will not talk glass cows we will talk lister questions joining us as well as a man with the other part of the answers also with some answers it's arizona joe hey joe
1: Hello, Taylor. Hello, Graham. Taylor, you're really into geography this week. I'm kind of here for it. Yeah, I I am still in Arizona. I'm glad I didn't have to be the one to pronounce where Graham lives because I was definitely not going to do it better than 98.5% of people. Um, so I'm just, Taylor, I'm just happy to be here, man. I'm just happy to be here.
2: I like it. And since I asked Graham the pronunciation question, Joe, for you, it's, it's Pahonix, right? That's how you pronounce the, the capital city.
1: Yep. No doubt. Yep. That's exactly how we all say it.
2: Is it the capital city? now, now, yes, now it paranoid. is. Right, it cool. is the capital city. I can never remember which states have the, like, like obvious the ones. obvious ones. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like Albany, New York. Get out of here, Albany. Get out of right. here. Right, right. All yeah. right. On that note, now that I've uh, annoyed at least one city in New York, <laughs> let's get to some questions. The first one coming from Mason Van Der See. If each of the hosts could have a show in the style of the Greg Burhalter and Bobby Warshaw USMNT podcast, which club manager would each would you each choose to be your recurring guest? This is a reference to the US Soccer podcast which Bobby hosts. He asks questions of Greg Burhalter, normally there's one after like each international break or thereabouts, they get into some of what happened on the pitch, some of the tactics. I think Bobby tries to probe as as comfortably as he can without sort of uh, poking the bear too much but it is enjoyable but it does beg the question joe who would you like to do a podcast with
1: I love this question, Mason. So thank you for asking this because I really do enjoy listening to that show. We've talked about that before. It's a tough job that Bobby has in in finding the balance that you kind of just walked us through, Taylor. It's not an easy thing to do and I'm not really jealous of that job. I'm a little jealous, but but not all that jealous. It's hard for me to pick one name here. So I'm going to run through three quickly, which is not the question I recognize, but I want to do it anyway because there's so many different people that I think would be interesting to talk to. So first of all, I ruled out immediately... Any coach in connection with American soccer, really, because I feel like there's a chance that maybe I could talk to those people on this show someday. And so I wanted this to be a little bit more hypothetical and maybe a little bit more outside my wheelhouse. The first one I thought of is Emma Hayes, a 45-year-old coach of Chelsea Women. She's been really successful there, has coached in the NWSL as well. So I guess there is a slight American tie-in. But she seems to be a really engaging personality. If I'm going to be doing a podcast with somebody and talking with them about who knows what, I want to have a rapport. I want there to be some of that that chemistry there. And M. Hayes feels like an engaging person to talk with. She asks questions in the videos I've seen of her. And she has great analysis. She wrote an analysis piece for The Athletic over the Euros, and maybe more importantly than that, she did a lot of TV coverage uh, for the Euros. And Graham honestly can speak to that better than I can because she wasn't on the coverage here in the U.S. But everything I've, I've seen bits and pieces of and everything I've read about her coverage, Brendan Rogers just came out and complimented her really profusely in an interview recently. I mean, it, that was supposed to be about him, right? She is someone that has gotten a lot of, of credit and I think deservingly so for some of the work she's done. So that's one. Quickly, the other two, both German coaches, Julian Nogglesman, he's young, uh, th- just 34, never played a pro game, that's an interesting angle to do an episode on. And then gotta do a whole show on that longboard he rode with, like, <laughs> yeah. truck wheels on it, right? So there's, there, there's the debut episode. And then Jurgen Klopp is the other one. We both wear glasses. We can talk about, you know, vision impairment. That'll be great. <laughs> I want to hear about how he keeps his teeth so white. Um, That's a big one for me. But then that's really, eight. I, I <laughs> yeah, it's fair. They're all dentures. I want to hear more about his thoughts on the game. And same with Nagelsmann and same with Hayes. I, I picked three people that I think are very tactically astute, which is something I'm interested in. How do they manage locker rooms? How do they draw up game plans? All of those things I think will be really interesting to chat with these three people about.
2: Veneers, Joe. Y'all gonna be doing some veneer chat?
1: I guess so. Yeah, I all really right. do.
2: So Emma Hayes, Julian Nagelsmann, Jurgen Klopp. I would listen to that podcast, Joe. If you just rotated them through, like you had a guest on every other week or every three weeks, I'm into it. Uh, Graham, for you, who would you like to chat with?
3: Yeah. So, so first of all, I I think the the concept of the Berhalter and 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 Bobby's podcast is is fantastic, and I'm surprised we haven't seen more of. This sort of thing with soccer managers, given the the boom in podcasts recently, I have have heard there are other podcasts out there besides uh, TSS. I don't know if you guys have <laughs> heard that as yeah. well. Yeah. I am I am particularly surprised we haven't seen it more with national team managers who have a, a bit more time on their hands to do longer form interviews like you would you would get on a podcast. So the, I I know the question says club managers, but. I feel like maybe the the format lends itself slightly more to national team managers because of the wider remit that they have. So I would really like one from a personal point of view with with Steve Clark. Although I'm not sure how much he personally would would relish that. He doesn't strike me as a podcast sort of guy. But you know, if, if you're an England fan, I imagine Gareth uh, uh, Southgate would also be be good to get on. I guess I'd be looking for someone who has good stories to tell. Um, I know that's not really what Berhalter does on the US Soccer Podcast, but I basically want the Taylor Rockwell of soccer. So who is that guy? <laughs> yeah. In Scottish football at the moment, I'd say it's someone like Ange Postacoglu, who maybe in time I will get sick to is sick of listening to, but at the moment there's still a lot of unknown about who he is, what his type of football is. He seems really interesting. He's He's had so many different experiences over his career. He hasn't had an orthodox route into... Um, the top of like elite level soccer, which I would still class Celtic as, so I would I would quite like one with him, and I guess in English football it would. I also had Nagelsmann and Klopp by the way, Joe, but in English football I think it would be difficult to look past uh, Bielsa and all the coaches, mm-hmm. and all the teams he has coached, all the players he has managed, all the uh, fiery tales throughout his career. I guess, and I guess it might not be much fun with his translator though, so I'm, I might have to learn Spanish before we we make that one happen. But yeah, Bielsa
2: would be fun as well. Um, I have one that will require me to learn Spanish as well. But first, Graham, do you have thoughts on why we don't see more podcasts like that or more sort of uh, longer form interviews with managers by the clubs? My assumption would be that there's a fear, like we've seen with Lukaku these past couple weeks, of what they might say and how it could be taken or how it could be spun. But I also think clubs, in my mind, seem to be more interested in the the kind of clickbaity things, the mm-hmm. headline grabbing things. A lot of times it's like, who's the funniest person in the locker room is the type of thing you're going to get versus why are you using the tactics you are? So my assumption is that it's sort of managers don't really want to do it and club PR people are more focused on sort of puff PC type things.
3: Yeah, and, and I guess club managers as well are pretty pressed for time. I don't uh, feel yeah. like club managers have a lot of of, uh time to, to deal out. That's why I say I think it maybe lends itself better to international managers. They have obviously time between uh, fixtures and even within training camps, it seems like they maybe have a bit more time. They're not dealing with transfers and, and, um, they are dealing with scouting to a certain extent, but maybe not to the same level as a club manager. So yeah, I think time is probably, a reason why but it wouldn't surprise me i know for instance my united have a, a podcast which I've, i have when it's been people i've been interested and in, i've listened to a couple times i don't think they've had the manager on yet for for a for a long-form interview but it wouldn't surprise me to see obviously podcasts seem to be getting more and more popular so um yeah it wouldn't surprise me to see a few more managers do those sort of interviews
2: Well, if either of these two managers decide to do a podcast, I am here to be the co-host. The first one, as I said, got to learn Spanish, but I want to do a podcast with Diego Simeone. Uh, I think it reminds me of the Paul F. Tompkins joke about working with Daniel Day-Lewis about how like you hear that he's a little bit intense, and he's not. He's really the most intense person, and that's what (laughs) I would be prepared for. I think a fun feature would be to see what question I had written Versus what question I actually ended up asking, because I can totally envision a scenario, knowing myself and knowing how terrified I already am of Diego Simeone, uh, that I would ask, like, I would write down, it seemed like you tried to be more aggressive in the attack in the second half. Why do you think Atleti still couldn't get anything going against Chelsea? And what I would actually ask is, why do Chelsea have to cheat to win? That's how I feel (laughs) like that would go. So I think it would be a fun sort of navigating those waters type podcast. Similarly, uh, for my Turkish interests, I would love to do a podcast with Fatih Tarim, the consistently on-again, off-again manager of the Turkish national team in Galatasaray. He kind of rotates through every now and then. He's kind of combined equal parts, Bruce Arena, Louis Van Hal, Diego Simeone, and Carlo Ancelotti. He's got the, the grandfatherly nature down as well, but he can be gregarious and charming. He could be out of control. I think the emotional swings would be uh, very, very fun. So those are my two, Diego Simeone and Fatih Tarim. Taylor, and I once... love that
1: so much. I love <laughs> yeah. every part of that.
3: And and once Simeone has finished the podcast, he won't shake your hand. He'll just run no. away. Yeah, uh, of <laughs> Like he does at the end of every match. Into the podcast tunnel. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, always,
2: I can never find a picture of it. I reference it every now and then. But there was the game when he was suspended and they just kept cutting to him sitting in a... It was like, you know, like where you where you'd sit if you're the offensive coordinator in an NFL game, but he had no lights on behind him and he was wearing his black suit, so it just looked like we I think we call it like the, the Diego Simeone punishment cube or the Diego Simeone uh, isolation cube. But I'm assuming that's where we would do the podcast in a in a pitch black room, him all in black and just like making unbroken eye contact with me for the hour of recording. And it would be fun but terrifying. So, I'm glad we're off to a good start. Let's see if we can continue it with a slightly more down question but still Good question from Richard Rolson with reports of more and more COVID cases affecting players and more teams beginning to be affected. It is reasonable to expect that there will be more games that get postponed this season. If that does happen, would it make sense for the Premier League to extend its season into June and ease the fixture congestion? There is not a World Cup to deal with this summer, so that worry is not there this year. But there are other issues that would have to be considered. Or are there other issues, Graham, that would have Mm -hmm. to be considered?
3: Yeah. So the first part of that question is difficult for me to answer because I, I suspect you would need to speak to a scientist who can uh, use their knowledge. Are you not knowledge a scientist? To, uh, no, not. Are you slide no. on your resume, sir. <laughs> Yeah, you would probably need to use their knowledge to predict what's going to happen with the pandemic over the coming weeks and months because the Premier League COVID-19 outbreaks over Christmas, they didn't happen in isolation. They were part of a a wider outbreak across the whole country. I know loads and loads and loads of people who currently have COVID. Um, So whether or not there are more games postponed will likely be linked to what's happening to in society as a whole. Looking at the second part of the question, which is the the kind of football part of uh, Richard's question, there is a technical reason um why they can't extend the season, and that is domestic leagues must be completed by May 31st to be eligible for entry to UEFA competitions for next season. Now, I guess UEFA could feasibly change that, but then you have other factors and other countries to consider. So no other big five European league so far has had the postponements and the troubles that the Premier League has had. So how would they then react to special dispensation being given to the Premier League? The other thing to consider is there is a round of international fixtures in early June to be played. In fact, the international schedule is so condensed with the World Cup happening at the end of this year that you have two lots of... Nations League fixtures being crammed into early June. So Scotland have games against Armenia, Ukraine, Republic of Ireland, and then Armenia again within a 10 day period at the start of June. So you'd be looking at shifting the international calendar, which again is about much more than, than the Premier League. That's, you know, every country in, in Europe and um, just looking specifically at Europe. And then you would have, then you would have the impact on pre-season and then UEFA competitions qualifying for those competitions starts in late June, unbelievably. And then you're into the season proper again in late July and early August. So I understand why a lot of people look at a a World Cup-free summer and think, oh, it's you know easy to extend into the season. I did that myself initially. Went, oh, why don't we just extend the season into the summer? But once you start factoring in everything, it's a little bit trickier than uh, first meets the eye.
2: Graham, when is uh, Scotland's World Cup qualifying games that they have remaining?
3: So we we only have our, hopefully we have two playoff games, but uh, we've got one in, they're both in March, if we have two games. Cool. Um, And then the Nations League
2: in the summer. want to make sure we give those proper billing ahead of time since we're talking about international (laughs) breaks. Taylor's working on the schedule for March. (laughs) Yeah, man. Got to make sure it's in there, and we got to make sure Ryan is not involved. Uh, Uh, (laughs) Joe, uh, anything to add? Graham, that was a great answer. I could not find the May 31st thing. I knew there was something in there, because whenever you're reading articles about this topic, and none of them ever get to that. Like we could just push into the summer. It means that there is a, a rule in place that everybody knows and just isn't mentioning because it's like I guess so widely known or just so understood to be the case. But I could not find it, so I'm glad you did, uh, Joe. Anything to add to Graham's lovely answer?
1: I found a few very similar things. The international fixture congestion is a super interesting part of this. I want to just just revisit that quickly. It's it's hard when you add. A six-week break, which is what the Premier League will be taking, even though that break is in November and December, it still makes everything else more challenging and, and adds more fixtures to the calendar regardless right, of when they're taking place. And we'll talk more about that later for a different question, or at least I will. But the fact that there's a World Cup, no matter what, does make this really challenging, regardless of when it's actually being scheduled. The FA, uh, the English Football Association, has a rule, and it was enacted and temporarily extended for the 2019-2020 season, the first season where COVID was a factor, really. Uh, the FA had a rule that said the season must be finished by 6-1, like no later than than the date that that Graham said earlier, May 31st. It has to be done right in that stretch. I don't think they're going to want to have to extend that again for all of the reasons that Graham already said And you you certainly can't go any later than June, right? We've talked about the contract situations of players before, but you you can't go into July when players' contracts have already expired. You run into so many legal problems there. You also run into financial problems at a a very basic fundamental level with extending the season at all. You have to pay people that help run the stadium that is still operating when it wasn't initially supposed to. If there are contractors working with the clubs, you have to continue to pay them. You have to pay – to power the stadium in situations where you didn't play. I mean, there's so many, the training complex, things like that that wouldn't normally be operating, food, all of those things that then you're still responsible for. I I don't think it's impossible for club owners to absorb those costs. Obviously, 99% of them can, I'm sure. But it's not exactly the most appealing option for any of those people. So between that, the fixture congestion, the rules, all of those things make it really challenging to play games into June for the Premier League. And I, for one... Obviously, this is a bit hard to say, given that we don't know the global health climate two months from now. I would be very surprised, given how much is on the line or how much seems to be on the line, if the Premier League or really any other top flight league is playing games into June.
3: Yeah, basically you would be looking at doing what we did in 2020 again, and p- people maybe have forgotten. I certainly haven't forgotten because I was working all of it. The end of 2020 was absolutely nuts with the number of games. There were, it was like, you know, the, the, the congested fi- fixture schedule you get over Christmas in the Premier League. It was like that for three to four months at the end of 2020. It would be like going back to that situation, but oh, by the way, everyone has to take six to eight weeks out for a World Cup <laughs> and, I, and I, I just don't really see how that can be
2: done to be honest One other little thing to add since Joe mentioned the six week uh, break that they're going to be taking mid-season to play that World Cup so players can go to the World Cup that does mean I think the season is starting a week earlier and finishing a week later so that also means preseason season is theoretically going to start a week earlier so you don't have you have like a, an extra week you're losing basically so you can't really extend it uh, that much more but I think Basically, the real answer, like distilling everything we've said down, would be money and rules and money and regulations. Does that sound about right? (laughs) Yeah, that that sounds about right. All right. All right. Perfect. Two questions (laughs) down, four to go. First, we're going to take a break. We are back. Next question from Joey Jedlowski. With the recent debacle in the UEFA Champions League draw, what is the point of having the draw for the knockout stages? The World Cup has the winner of Group A, play the runner-up in Group B, and so on. That seems much more straightforward. And similarly, why do they separate draws for each round within the knockout phase? This whole process seems very prone to human manipulation by fraud or by error. So what is the purpose of it? Why not build out the bracket in advance like the World Cup? Graham, let's give a little bit of background. Uh, can you explain what Joey is referencing for people who maybe have forgotten or people who missed it? What was the issue with the draw this year?
3: Yeah, so last month, the, the draw for the, the round of 16 of the Champions League took place with the group stages out of the way. And um, essentially, the draw had to be redone a- after there was a mistake. So what happened was my United's ball was, was placed into a pot that it shouldn't have been in. Um, This saw them drawn against Villarreal, who they, by the the competition's own rules, they couldn't face because they had been in the same group as them, so they would have been playing them in two successive rounds. At that point, it became clear that something had gone wrong. There were a lot of nervous looks around the 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 ceremonial hall that it was taking place in, but they had to go through with it all the way to to, to the end anyway. Um, That mistake then led to another. So when it came time to selecting Atletico Madrid's opponent for the round of 16, Manchester United were not one of the balls in the pot when they should have been that they were mistakenly excluded because they had already been drawn, as UEFA saw it, but obviously that was uh, done in error, that draw. So it was kind of a butterfly effect where one mistake led to another, and then obviously the whole draw was compromised after that, so they had no choice but to redo it all, I think, about an hour later, which was very embarrassing for UEFA.
2: <laughs> so, Joe, do you have thoughts on why they do it this way? Why don't we just follow the World Cup format? Uh, for my research, I think there is wh- there are like one or two sort of answers that relate to the competition itself and then there's one that's maybe more so my opinion I'm wondering if it's one that we all share.
1: Yeah, I think I share that opinion and I'll get to that in just a second. There are there are some logical rules or at least some things that I can yeah. see UEFA's logic in for why they approach this with a draw format unlike a more scripted World Cup format. Uh, it, I think it helps vary the competition a little bit with some of those rules. So some of the rules are Group winners play group runners up. Two group winners cannot be drawn together, right? So, so they cannot be playing each other in the next round. Teams cannot play other teams from their same association. That's another part of this. You can't be drawn, like Manchester City couldn't be drawn against Chelsea in the round of 16, something like that. Teams can't play a team from their group in the round of 16. All of this helps provide different matchups. And so I actually kind of appreciate that about this from UEFA. We get to see teams play each other that we really wouldn't get to see play against one another in other situations. Or if it was formatted in a slightly different way, I can see logic in that. And and I'm not against any of that. The biggest reason, though, and this is my opinion, Taylor, I'm I'm guessing it's yours as well. Who knows about Graham? It's a spectacle, right? If you can get attention on another part of your tournament and, and turn something into an event that otherwise would just be written down on a piece of paper and posted online... That's probably not really how the World Cup bracket works, but you get the idea, right? Why not do that? If I'm UEFA, I'm absolutely doing that. I'm drumming up every bit of attention. I'm taking every bit of spotlight that I can. I think it's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely a spectacle. It gets some important people into a room together. It gets people talking about the tournament and drums up excitement for some of these games. I think it's, it's genuinely a brilliant move. Even something like the botched draw, how much more are we talking about it now? This is not always a any publicity is good publicity situation, but to an extent, I think there's value. How many more people are going to be tuning into the draw next year, or at least thinking about it when all those articles come out? You know, one year anniversary of the botch draw, all of those things, right? So it it is absolutely a spectacle that shines light on the competition, and I think that's a big part of why UEFA does it.
2: Graham, any any thoughts on that?
1: Just that
3: UEFA love a video montage, and they love. <laughs> Wheeling out, they, they love reminding us all that players of yesteryear still exist by uh, wheeling them out to conduct the draws on uh, on the stage. But yeah, with, with regards to the to the World Cup, um, I think having the the bracket in place ahead of the tournament makes sense from a logistical point of view as well, because fans and national associations can they can kind of plot a route in terms of where matches are hosted, and that might not be much of an issue in Qatar, where obviously every match will be played in an area the size of uh, of New York. But most World Cups are logistical nightmares with travelling and booking hotel rooms. And you'll likely find that most national associations have banks of hotel rooms and facilities booked in each of the places the bracket says they could be placed. And so you don't really have that same issue to the same extent with the, with the Champions League. Um, so that's another reason why. Maybe UEFA wouldn't go down that route. I know with World Cups fans, for example, they they will plot, okay, if we finish second in the group, where these are the three places that we can be playing games. If we finish third, this is where we could be going. And obviously with uh, clubs and Champions League, they just play where their home stadiums are. So it's not really a factor.
2: I would also add, with the World Cup, you do sort of get, uh, once a game or two has been played, there's all the speculation about, like, oh, like, is that team who's, like, right now, the team who's topping their group will have to play Germany, most likely. And then there's always the speculation, like, are they going to try to finish second to avoid Germany? or to, And, like, I think you maybe UEFA wants to avoid some of that, like, gamesmanship or manipulation of results on the final couple of days of the group stage. Because if you know who you might be getting, I could see an argument that it could... Change the way you're playing or change the results you're looking to get versus, like, once you qualify for the next round, it is more or less random with the kind of built-in provisions that Joe mentioned to keep the, the like, foreign mystery around it. Because you can't get somebody from your own country, you're getting somebody from elsewhere that you don't theoretically get to play that often. So I, I, I can see how wanting to keep everybody focused on the present could be. Part of it as well, you don't want people looking ahead to, oh, if both of those teams win, then we're we're getting a Classico in the next round. You want everybody focused on the current round. But I think a lot of it does, uh, agreeing with Joe, boil down to, I think UEFA just like getting to rent tuxedos or pull out the tuxedo they purchased (laughs) and uh, remind everybody how important they are, how many former players are still involved in doing big things and how great and grandiose. And, you know, it's an opportunity to, to spend some money and probably uh, line some pockets at the same time. Uh, allegedly says me, not Graham, because I'm in America and Graham's not.
1: <laughs> well, and, and, and they also have some sort of, they must have some sort of sponsorship deal with those like little ping pong soccer ball balls that they use. Got and they Got must you. just have to finish out that licensing deal or whatever it is. And I, I don't think that ends for another few years now.
3: Stiga, that's a
1: table tennis uh,
3: manufacturing brand. I used to play table tennis. There you go,
1: Joe. We should play. I I also enjoy dabbling in table tennis. When when eventually we schedule that trip to eat meat pies and hang out, which I guess is happening now, which I'm super down for, by the way, um, (laughs) then we should just play some table tennis, too. Absolutely.
2: I think you all should play. It should be eat a meat pie with the brown sauce, play a game, eat another one and yeah. see who can last the longest before passing out and feeling disgusting. Joe, you have just blown my I'd mind buy here. i myself in that. <laughs> I, As I do you, I, actually. I um, I, th- those do have to be sponsored. And now oh, I need Pablo yeah. Mar to write an article about like the bidding war for the, uh, the UEFA Draw ball sponsor. I, I yeah. like that.
1: Yeah toss in the the paper as well Whoever's in charge of supplying that (laughs) With the little club names on it I think that's a win (laughs) <laughs> I,
2: yeah, because I cannot imagine. They're just, like, printing out pieces of paper 20 minutes before the draw. That has to be a whole it's got special. It's got
1: the Gazprom logo extra, on it.
2: Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm picturing the American Psycho scene of, like, everybody comparing the paper being used. Joe, that's a movie reference for well, you. Enjoy cool. Cool, so cool, cool. You're cool. talking
3: about the paper being sponsored. I <laughs> thought you were mean like, a supplier, like Dunder Mifflin as Maybe sponsor. That, and Mif- yeah.
2: <laughs> Anything we can do to get Dwight Schrute in the room with uh, Alexander Seferin and, and the UFA bigwigs, I think He'd be
3: into that. I think, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it feels like a spinoff.
2: off. They only tried to spin it off once. Let's go and for it. Meet- meetings
3: one. held at his farm.
1: Oh. <laughs> Would anyone care for a beat? <laughs>
2: uh, as always, the answer is no. Uh, yep. Next question from Russell Varner What makes one good international manager, or one a good international manager, as opposed to a good club team manager? Just how different are the two positions? We talk about this uh, fairly often on this show how. Some managers can be more inclined to manage on the international stage and kind of like it suits their skill set to manage a national team. Other managers seem much more suited to managing club teams and some, very very few, uh, seem adept at both. So, Joe, what do you think in your mind is the, is the sort of di- main difference or main differences?
1: Sure. So a big part of this, I think, is a national team's, a national team manager's willingness to be flexible. And weirdly, this actually came up yesterday a little bit, Taylor, with a yep. question you asked Graham in the whole Daryl DK, how does he fit at West Brom and their style versus the U.S.'s yep. style? And, and you asked Graham about, you know, do you prefer a manager that's, that's sort of rigid in that they prefer a particular way of playing or one that's flexible? And I agree with Graham. I think there's a call for both. I think it's, it's important as a national team manager or a club manager to have a tactical vision and general principles in place for how you want to play. But I think when you're a national team manager, there's a greater call to be flexible on how those how those principles are actually displayed on the field, right? Because you don't have as many games, and and maybe more important than that, you have a finite group of players available to you. You only have so many people involved in the player pool at any given time that you can draw from and utilize their specific skills. Versus with a club, you have a, a much greater ability and option to change the resources available to you, right? You can go out and sign a player in January. You can only do it at fixed points, which is different than than an international team, I suppose. But I would argue there's still greater flexibility there and you have more resources available to you. So there are different requirements in that regard in terms of tactical flexibility, which is naturally tied to the personnel in the player pool that you're drawing from. There's also differences in, I think, man management, Right. Yep. Natural team managers. And, and this is a fascinating thing that I wish I knew more about. Maybe this will come up in my my chat with uh, those three managers we talked about earlier. But national team managers have to figure out ways to build and maintain chemistry over the course of a year, over the course of their tenure. Right. It takes a special type of person, I think, at least in personality to manage a situation like that how do you stay engaged how are you budgeting your time to set up calls with those people how do you engage with them how well do you know these people even though you really don't get to spend all that much time with them especially relative to a club manager who those people have have to figure out a whole different challenge of how do i maintain Chemistry while being in such close proximity with players and some coaches, Tato Martino comes to mind, don't tend to get so involved with their players. And, and then you have the other end of the spectrum, which I think is Jesse Marsh in a lot of regards, at least in the American soccer circles, of someone who wants to be there for his players and wants to be much more involved in their lives and, and helping them with different situations. So club managers have to navigate that whole thing, which I think is incredibly challenging. There's a lot more, and, and maybe you guys have other other points to add here. But those are the couple of things that really stood out to me, chemistry and maintaining personalities and also figuring out ways to be flexible or, or I guess, in, somewhat inflexible depending on what your responsibilities are.
2: Joe, I had a, a fairly similar answer. Uh, you went with flexibility. I went with practicality when yeah. you're the international manager that basically you can't sort of complain that you don't have the number nine you need to fit your style. You've got to make like what you do have work for purposes of getting the result you need. Did you, Joe, find yourself slightly nervous about Greg Berhalter in thinking more deeply about this question? Because I do think part of what makes Bruce Arena such a good national team manager up until 2017 <laughs> was his willingness to just sort of, Throw the philosophy, throw the tactics out the window. Again, I think that quote gets a little bit overblown. But I think what I think of with Bruce Arena is just like, you know what, this team can't defend crosses into the box. So I'm putting two giant forwards in there and we're going to score some goals off. It's it's there's a sort of just we're getting this result. It's not going to be pretty, but it's about the results that practicality and the ability to be flexible, to be practical, I think makes a big difference. But it makes me a little bit nervous about Greg Berhalter, who seems to be more about philosophy.
1: At times. Well, I think there's a, a spectrum here, Taylor, to be honest with you. I think there's a spectrum with 2019 Greg Berhalter on one end and maybe Bruce Arena on the other end. And I, I'm very hesitant to lean all the way into the... Oh, we can totally abandon how we play and what we've built just to get the Mm -hmm. result. And and I've said before, the results, especially in this World Cup qualifying period, are the most important thing. There's no if, ands, or buts about that. But I I am a firm believer that building something and building a process and working through that and having these foundational elements is key to actually leading to future results. So I I don't want to lean all the way towards the Bruce Arena side. But I do have concerns about Greg Berhalter and his rigidity and his lack of flexibility. We've seen that over and over again. To think back to other moments of World Cup qualifying that have been rough. The, the first half of the Honduras game really stands out in my mind. The U.S. were in a bad spot and they got a result, which is huge, but it wasn't an encouraging one, right? So, so there's challenges there. And I do think Greg Baraltas made progress and moved a little bit closer towards the Bruce Arena end of the spectrum. We've seen him start to press more than he did initially, which I think was always the plan. We've seen him be a little bit more pragmatic and, and not quite as tied to playing out of the back, I think that's also been helpful in certain situations. So I I certainly have concerns about Greg Baralter, but I do want to give him some credit for moving a little bit more towards the reasonable but still slightly idealistic end of that spectrum.
2: All right. Well, Graham, uh, not surprisingly, uh, we've managed to make this about the U.S. Men's National Team. (laughs) Uh, So I will give you the option. You can either uh, continue to calm my anxieties about the U.S. Men's National Team, or you can answer the actual question. It's up to you.
3: Well, I'm not going to do the former
2: uh, so I'll take on the
3: latter <laughs> yeah so my, my thoughts are pretty much in line Thanks with what Graham. you guys have already said so the, the the things that I have got is you need to be probably need to be a good communicator, um as we all know, you don't get as much time on the pitch with your players in international soccer, so you need to get your ideas across pretty quickly. I also have down um pragmatism and the other maybe the slightly different tangent I've gone on down is methodical in thought so what I mean by that is I I don't think every international manager has to be conservative you can be an idealist to a certain extent but I think you do have to prioritize certain things and I I honestly think um Gareth Southgate is a good example of, of this so he comes into that job pretty um close to the 2018 World Cup he recognized the need at that point to play on the counter attack Then at the Euros, he gave England more of a a platform in midfield, which was a response to what happened at the the World Cup. Now it looks like he's going to have to take the game to opponents a bit more at the 2022 World Cup. And I think he recognised he couldn't do it all at once like maybe a club manager would seek to do and he's moved through different phases of development and I think a lot of the best international managers do that where you can separate their their stewardship out into different sections. I think Steve Clark has done something similar, maybe not so much in terms of his style of play like Southgate has done, but he's done it with players. So when he first came in it was all about right, let's get the centre midfield sorted, then it became about the defence, then it became about the attack and Scotland now kind of have a whole unit because he has got through that those phases of development the other thought that I had which isn't really necessarily a, a soccer related thing but I, I want a national team manager who kind of embraces a role as more than just a football coach and again it's just as well Ryan Bailey isn't here goodness me but I think Southgate is probably a, a pretty good example of this uh, I I'm probably talking myself into believing Southgate is a good manager here but I think he understands that there's more to um, being the England national team manager than just putting a football team on the pitch he is the most obvious figurehead for soccer in England he's almost a, a spokesperson for English soccer and he supports his players as more than just football players and I think that is pretty important for a, a good national team manager and that will have a, a knock-on effect of helping him in a football respect as well because he then gains the respect of his players more buy-in from his players so there are two sides of it but I, I want a, a national team manager who's maybe a bit more than just a football coach
2: Do you think Gareth Southgate will be a good club manager if that's the way he goes once he's done with England? (laughs) So do you think he has to be international from now on?
3: Um, He may surprise me, but I think Gareth Southgate is built for international football management. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I think he's
3: a good international manager. I'd be surprised if many of the qualities I've just mentioned translated that well into club management.
2: Uh, You all have answered uh, most of what I had about what makes a good club manager philosophy, Uh, balance, uh, commitment to kind of building the team. But I think that the idea of like building a squad that suits your philosophy and persona is a key part of being a club manager. Because if you're Pep Guardiola, who's going to be intense, and if you're Marcelo Bielsa, who's going to demand certain things of your players, Joe, as you said, not as interested in like interacting with them and being their buddy, but in training, is screaming at them and drilling them. And if you are bringing in players to your team that don't thrive under those conditions, that don't respond to that style of coaching, it's going to be a disaster. And I don't think international managers have that same luxury to a certain degree. Obviously, if there's just a, a clash of personalities, this player does not fit with the squad, does not fit with my philosophy, they're going to be left out. And we see that from time to time when World Cups roll around. But for the most part, I think international managers have to kind of work with what they have to put the best team out on the pitch to get the result every single time. Club managers, I think, have a little bit more leeway. Not a ton, but a little bit. So uh, I, and I also share, Graham, your thoughts that maybe Gareth Southgate should just be England manager uh, for forever and then Ryan Bailey can just be happy for forever.
3: No, I, no, that's not my thoughts at all. You've misread me entirely there.
2: <laughs> all right, so uh, Gareth Southgate manages England, then leaves to go coach Scotland. Would that be better? Uh, uh. <laughs> I
3: mean, it, theoretically, I should be on board with that, but no, know still you no. Know.
2: I don't know if you should. Um, on that sort of ponderous note, as we leave Graham, I think sadder than he was before I asked the question, <laughs> uh, we will be back with our final two questions. All right, gentlemen, homestretch. Nathan Clark, how will a Winter World Cup affect the upcoming summer transfer market? Will fewer players be on the move and will less money overall be spent? When we answer listener list of questions, uh, I feel like there's always one or two questions that I read and I'm like, ah, I don't know. And then I think about it more and more and more and I slowly realize that it's a really good question and does sort of have a bigger impact than I thought. This is one of those questions. I initially was like, ah, probably not that much. And the more I thought about it, the more I think it will have a sizable impact. That is the sort of intro to my thoughts on it. But Graham, I would love to hear yours.
3: Yeah, so the first note that I have on this is in capital letters, this is a good question. There we go. There we <laughs> and, go. And uh, and it's one I'm not sh- sure we will fully know the answer to until it actually happens. I know that's, I know that's a boring uh, A boring answer, but we have never had a Winter World Cup before, and so this is entirely new territory. If I had to make a prediction, I expect we may see more loans than usual for a summer window. So players that who are um, looking to secure their place in a a national team squad or players who are maybe looking to get up to speed before before the World Cup, they might be looking short-term to get more game time. So, for example... Uh, Jesse Lingard, before the Euros, he made a loan move to, to West Ham, which was designed to kind of boost his chances of, of, of making the England squad for the Euros. Those are pretty common in January. If you have, in the normal cycle where you have a World Cup in the summer, those are, those are pretty common that you have those loan moves in January. And so I think we'll see more of those in, in the summer. Players more willing to think short term and, and, and think, right, if I get two or three solid months at a, a loan club under my belt, I've got a better chance of having a good World Cup. Um, I also think game time is going to be a big big factor in a lot of decisions made in the summer window. So in a normal cycle, a player would have time to settle in at new club, with there being a full season before a World Cup at the end of it. And I think players, even players who are moving permanently, um, players on the move who want to have a good World Cup are are likely going to want to play immediately if they're moving to a World Cup because if they are out of the team for even a month or two, you know there is between the start of the season and the World Cup. There's only going to be, what, August, September, October as full months, three months before the the World Cup players go away. So there's not much time for, they can't really be sitting out many games. So I think that is also going to be a consideration as if players aren't going to be guaranteed immediate game time, then they might not be willing to move with the World Cup on the horizon.
2: So Graham thinks some ramifications. I would agree with that. Joe, where are you on this one?
1: I'm I'm with Graham. Graham, it seems to me from that answer, you looked at it a bit more from the player side. And, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. I'm not trying to oversimplify it. No totally. Okay. So I looked at this a bit more from a team perspective. And it seems to me, and I don't know, I guess disclaimer up front. Uh, I don't know the financial state of these clubs. That's an obvious thing to say. Financially, they may not be ready to do what I'm about to say that they should do. Um, But I'm curious about what's going to happen here. I think if anything... Clubs will prioritize deepening their squads, and that could come through loans, like Graham was saying. I also think we could conceivably see, and it's hard because COVID does put a massive wrinkle in here in the financial issues that's caused. But I think we could see clubs go out and acquire more depth. I think they'll need more depth genuinely than they've ever needed before to make it through a normal season, right? So you've got players going off to the World Cup. That's one whole thing here. Then you have fixture congestion that pairs with that World Cup break that we talked about earlier in in November and December. You're going to have more midweek games really than ever before, certainly in the Premier League. So you've got the World Cup players missing for that. You need depth to deal with the the absences and the, the misses and the injuries that are going to come from that on either side of the break, especially the backside of that break. Then you've got fixture congestion that comes from the break. And then you have COVID on top of that. We don't know what that's going to look like. Hopefully it's not nearly as much of a factor, you know, 8, 10, 12 months from now. But we don't really know. I think clubs, if they're thinking about this and if they have the financial clout to be able to do something like this. You want to go out and sign players on loan. You want to go out and sign players on permanent deals. You need depth because players, especially for good teams that are going to be playing in a World Cup, aren't going to be there. And players that are, that are playing in their stead maybe in the beginning of January and playing all those extra midweek games, they're going to be injuries. And that's the unfortunate reality of this whole situation. So I think to really address Nathan's question... I think we'll maybe see the opposite of what he sort of posits to us. I think we'll see more players on the move and more money spent. Certainly, in a perfect world, I don't really know. Well, I guess in a perfect world, the World Cup wouldn't be in Qatar, would it? But I don't think we'll see. I don't think we'll see less, if anything, especially relative to the last couple of years with COVID spending. But I, I I don't know. I'm I'm curious, like Graham said, to really see what's going to happen a year from now or over the summer. Excuse me.
2: I'm. I I think I, I took it a slightly different way because, like. Very briefly, I think my thoughts are that I think we'll see fewer moves this coming summer for the reasons that Graham laid out, that you don't have as much time to bet in. And I think players are oftentimes nervous to move a year before the World Cup, a few months before the World Cup. I think that can be make or break if you're on the periphery of a squad. And you move to a new club that theoretically could be a big move. If you're moving to Bayern Munich, oh, that's going to raise my profile. But then if you're never playing for them, I could see that meaning that you get left off. So maybe there'll be some hesitation. I think January of 2023 is going to be pretty wild. We always see the post-World Cup bump for the player that catches fire, has a great tournament. Suddenly they're valued at 20 million pounds more than they were before the World Cup. And I could see some craziness in January. And I definitely see the summer of 2023 being a spending spree of sorts, because you will have teams maybe keeping their powder dry, maybe it's more loans, maybe they're slightly more conservative in the summer of 2022. But then you've got a World Cup, January window gone, you've got to kind of make a statement in the summer even more so. And I think we'll see a ton of spending in 2023. With that said, I think there's two outliers. I think big deals are still going to get done because if you are starting for Manchester City and Real Madrid want to buy you, chances are you're going to be starting for Real Madrid. So I think those moves will still happen. And I do wonder if non-World Cup players will be slightly more valuable. Like, does Erling Haaland, does he have an extra 5 million euros tacked onto his fee because he won't be going to the World Cup so you don't have some of those headaches that you have to navigate?
3: M. I, I hate to be a pedant, but obviously, like uh, Haaland has the release clause. So, he, so I, but I get the point you're making. And yes, potentially those players could, uh, could have a little bit extra tacked on to, to, to their, to their price tag. Joe, when you were making your point, it really just hit home how knackered players are going to be. Yeah. But I, <laughs> you, you know that, that, um, that meme you seen, uh, going around Twitter of, uh, the first one is John Travolta and Newton John in Greece. And then the second one is, uh, Travolta and Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's going to be football players. It's going to be 2019 is the top one Greece in Greece and 2022 20, is the bottom one in, uh, in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, players are going to be shells.
2: Well... We're just ending every single one of these questions on an optimistic note. It does feel like (laughs) we're just just going to have so much uncertainty. I do not pity the football clubs that have to uh, navigate this one while going back to the earlier question dealing with postponements and rescheduling. uh, I feel like there will be more money lost and a lot more money spent before this is all said and done. Final question. Joe Lowry comes to you first from Nick Gillick. Will Jesse Marsh's dismissal from RB Leipzig have an adverse effect on the growth of Americans coaching abroad or will it be perceived as an isolated case? Obviously, we cannot know for sure. Joe is not guaranteeing that Americans will be more or less desirable. Oh, I am. Okay. All right. Uh, But Joe, in your perspective, in your feeling, what do you think Jesse Marsh being sacked means for Americans trying to coach abroad?
1: So it's going it's going to come up, right? Just like Bob Bradley's time at Swansea comes up every time. And and this is partly my fault and Taylor, your fault and Graham's because we talk about this stuff, right? There's there's only been so many examples of this happening that it's only natural that it's going to come up and, and, and potentially have a slight adverse effect on the opportunities given to coaches abroad for for Americans trying to make that jump. Ultimately, though. It's not going to ruin the reputation for American coaches. I I do think at a lot of clubs, the technical directors and the directors of football are too smart for that stuff. I think they're too smart to say, look at, to to just generally rule out an entire country in their coaching tree because of one or two coaches. Let's not forget, Bob Bradley has been hugely successful in a number of other jobs. Jesse Marsh has been hugely successful in at least two other jobs outside of the Leipzig job. They're, they're good coaches and they've done well in certain places that proves they can have success at other places. Logically, Marsh and Bradley are both, to an extent, isolated cases because they're both individual situations. But more than that, I think American soccer is progressing slowly, admittedly, but American soccer is progressing past the point where one or two failed coaching stints in Europe are going to cloud the judgment of those technical directors or of those directors of football that I talked about before. I think those people... At certain clubs, again, not at, at other big European clubs, I think certain people are smarter than that and are willing to look at, at a body of work, or are willing to look at a talented young coach coming through MLS and say, I want to give them a chance. We have philosophies that align. We have a lot of traits that we value in a coach that are fulfilled in that person. I think we're going to see someone like Jim Curtin get a move and go to Europe or, or Greg Baralter will go to Europe after he's done with the national team or Greg Vanney or Robin Fraser. there will be more coaches going and, and some of them will start to have success. And I think at a certain point, we're going to look back and, and look at Jesse Marsh and Bob Bradley more as trailblazers. I'm kind of expanding the question a bit, I suppose, but look at Jesse Marsh specifically with the, the level of that job as a trailblazer. And ultimately I think that might even have a positive impact in, at least on coaches looking to make that move. Long-term, I don't think this is going to have an adverse effect on the growth of American coaches. Maybe in the short term it could have a slight one, but really I think soccer is getting too smart to to rule out people based on nationality.
2: Graham, do you have any thoughts on this one? Because if not, I have a larger question for you about American coaching.
3: I'll, I'll, I'll go first with, with, a, with a few thoughts on on this. So I would be surprised if uh, Marsh's failure at Leipzig has any impact on how American coaches are seen. In Germany in particular, there seems to be my perspective from my perspective anyway, there seems to be a greater respect for American soccer in Germany than really anywhere else in in Europe. They obviously have a good track record of young players going through there, and there's also a good record of American coaches there too. Keep in mind, you have um, Matarazzo at, at Stuttgart. I know that you know there's a dual national the- uh, thing there, but still American born, David Wagner again, dual national, but he's worked there before. I do think. Um, unfortunately in in britain there is a there is a different scenario and and there is still a stigma not about american players at all really now but about american coaches and unfortunately we saw the worst of that in the way that bob bradley was treated when he was at uh, Swansea City he calls and it yes, a
2: field Graham he calls yeah, it a field
3: and says PK instead of penalty kick it yep. was it was embarrassing frankly it was a lot of I cringed a lot of, a lot of the coverage and uh, yeah it didn't go well from in terms of results on the pitch but I still believe to this day that he was given no leeway at all because of the way he was mocked in the media um, mm-hmm. by fans and by even by reporters and the there's a show on Sky Sports a, a really popular show on the Saturday morning called Soccer AM it still has a section on there a segment that mocks Bob Bradley and the way the, the whole joke is basically, oh, look at this guy he says American things, which, you yep. know, funnily enough, he is American. Ha ha ha. But I, I, the thing with Marsh is, as well, if we're t- looking at him specifically, I don't know what it is with Jesse Marsh. Maybe it's because he looks a little bit more of like a European soccer manager. He, you know, yeah. Bob Bradley yep. looks quite traditionally american uh i hope i'm not offending anyone there but he, in my mind he does and, and marsh i think will get another another shot a, a big job i think i wouldn't even realize marsh getting a premier league job to be honest i think lower league uh, lower level premier league clubs would probably consider jesse marsh keep in mind he was very highly rated at salzburg so he has done a good job in europe already so i wouldn't worry too much about what marsh's impact has done I still think, unfortunately, there's a lingering
2: impact from Bob Bradley, which is very, very unfortunate. I'm envisioning a Ted Lasso-esque like sketch now in which it's just American coaches in a classroom having to learn the proper lingo for the country they're going to coach in so they don't like say the wrong term and then get vilified <laughs> in the press. I think that's that's a skill set we need to develop. Um, I, I, I agree with both of you, mostly. I think my answer is that like, no, but maybe. And I'll get to the but maybe in a second as to whether or not it will have an impact. The no would be basically that I think the way fans and supporters and people who care about Jesse Marsh's career think about this is different than the way any club is going to think about it. Because no club who's considering hiring Jim Curtin, to, jo- uh, to Joe's point, is going to think, oh, but Jesse Marsh didn't work out. Let's have a think about this one for a moment. That's sort of immaterial in my mind. So I don't think it has that big of an impact. Where I think it it potentially does it speaks to what graham is talking about i think players when they move abroad i think there was a stigma for a while about americans and do they actually play do they know how to play or do they just work really hard but a, an american player can go to a club in england or france or germany or wherever and spending time with their teammates spending time in the country they can blend and they're not the one who has to lead the team they can blend into the team and sort of assimilate to the culture when you're a manager you have to lead the team And sort of blend into the culture at the same time. And I think that's less so the case in England because the Premier League is just so international with so much money behind it at this point. But in other leagues, I think it's really difficult to go in and be part of the culture in that city, in that club. But coming from America, you just have different approaches to things. You have different understandings of things. And I think it can manifest in the terminology that's used. But I think it's really hard for managers to go from one country to another. I think, again, England being the exception, you tend to have Italians managing in Italy and then maybe in the Premier League or maybe some of the bigger clubs. But I don't think you have a ton of movement as much as we maybe think. And that leads to my maybe it having an impact is just that one of the ways I think Americans could have made that jump more readily to coaching would be through the sort of football group pipelines. And there was this feeling, um, for me at least, that like he has success in New York or to some extent. And then he's at Salzburg and has success there. And then he's at Leipzig. And, and there's this pipeline of like, yep, as if they've put you in the pipeline, then you're going to be a success. You're going to come out the polished gem and you can keep going from there. And that would be the only thing I think that has an impact is that now we've seen one person in the pipeline not have the success that we expected. And so maybe there's just a little bit more thought put into who we bring through as opposed to it's just automatically going to produce results. So that would be the only sort of negative impact. But I think the larger thing is more a cultural divide that has to be bridged.
1: Yeah, the, the, the pathway was so marred, Taylor, that Chris Armas just jumped ship and just went over to Manchester United. I mean, think about how desperate you have to be to do that, right?
2: <laughs> it's funny because it's sad. Uh,
1: but even there, like, that, that is the pipeline, right? Because it's Rangnick who
2: has uh, the connection to, 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 to RB, and, or to Red Bull, I guess I can say. Uh, and, and so there you go. But I, yeah, so I think you will still get that. But I, I do think there's a cultural just blending that has to occur and Jesse Marsh is one who I think when he was sacked uh the f- like the first time in MLS did like the year tour with his family and traveled around the world and had this sort of experience and I wonder if that helped him fit in in Europe a little bit more readily and to to Graham's point you've got Pellegrino Matarata you've got David Wagner both of whom are have like dual nationality have bet like Then living in in Europe for a very, very long time, certainly in David Wagner's case, more than he lived in the United States, which I'm assuming was like a couple months in total. uh, I think that that kind of fits into it as well. So I don't think it has a huge impact, but I think it has a a slight tiny impact maybe.
3: To to take the conversation in a slightly different direction, who who is the next – American coach to kind of go over to Europe or get a big opportunity. Let's, let's, um, sideline Marsh because I think he might be the answer. He might get another big gig, but is it Jim Curtin? Is he the one who gets the next, the big, the next big opportunity? I
1: think so. I was grim. I, I almost laughed there into the mic because I was literally about to open my mouth to ask the exact same question to you guys. My money is on Curtin. Uh, I don't know when exactly. I don't know how likely it is for any of these guys, but Curtin is, the one that I think has the best outlook right now after what he's done with the union, really helping turn that entire club around, along with Ernst Tanner, who's, who's in the front office there, of course. Curtin's my answer. Taylor, what do you think? And Graham, I want to get your answer as well to that.
2: I think it's sort of slim Pickens. If I'm running through my list of like uh, American coaches who I think could be well positioned for that jump, I think Jim Curtin is... The name. The only other one, Graham mentioned it already, is like maybe Bob Bradley after Toronto. But even there with Insignia coming in, Michael being there, I can't imagine he wants to leave unless there's a very good offer. But short of that, Joe, like I'm running through the names and there's nobody that I think of as really having the consistent success and the ability to manage a team and make a playoff run that would be appealing or has the connections to a European club wh- who would be the other candidates
1: the other candidates I think they're the ones I ran through earlier just very quickly Curtin Vanny and Robin Fraser, I think are the three yeah. that, that at least quickly come to mind to me as Americans in MLS that could go on to do something like that Vanny needs certainly another few seasons he's got to get the galaxy humming I think before any European club would be interested and if he does I do think that generates buzz because of who the galaxy are and, and how well known they are overseas. Well, Robin Fraser needs some more time with the Rapids as well. Incredible season for them last year, but it needs to be replicated more, I think, than it has been. What What about international
3: soccer's most prolific Air Jordan winner? Yeah, if baby. a baby. World Cup at the end of the year.
1: If the US does well, that could, that could be possible. And and I think Berhalter is one of those managers that with how he wants to play, really might end up fitting better at a club. His Columbus Crew team played some really beautiful soccer. He only had, I think I'm remembering correctly, one job before that over in in Sweden, over in in Scandinavia, certainly. He hasn't been a club coach for all that long or certainly hasn't experienced all that many different environments. He could be a really intriguing option for a team in Europe that, that believes in his vision and appreciates some of the things on his resume. Yeah, I like that one, too.
2: But short of short of having the connections to like the Red Bull pipeline, or even Jim Curtin, I sort of put in that category because Brendan Aronson has had the success he has, Paxton Aronson we would assume will make a move as well, so it feels like there is an existing connection of sorts there. Like like when Bob Bradley leaves the US, he coaches Egypt, then I think he's in Norway, then I think he's in a like a second division French club France, for a while, yeah. and... And I wonder with Berhalter, let's say the U.S. makes it into the knockout round, doesn't necessarily – it's not like they make a huge run. They don't turn a ton of heads. Would you all agree that I think Berhalter, if he were to then go manage a European club, is probably following a similar Bradley route of like maybe he's getting a mid-tier French team or a mid-tier German team who want to try something different. But I don't think the kind of – like I, I Salzburg is looking at Greg Berhalter. I know Leipzig like is like looking at Greg Berhalter. I feel like it still is sort of lower tier clubs where they have an opportunity to prove themselves.
1: Well, with with the Red Bull clubs, you mentioned, Taylor, there's the I- ideology difference, although Red yep. Bull are pushing closer and closer towards the possession side, at least Leipzig are. And that's the state of desire of those players. But I, I agree with your general premise. I don't think Beralta's going from the US job unless they make a deep run in the yeah. World Cup, which is not impossible. But if that doesn't happen, I don't think he's going to a Champions League team. I think he's going to maybe a Europa League team or, or maybe sort of a mid table team in one of those traditionally big five leagues. But I don't think he's really shooting for the stars on the back of this US tenure.
2: Because I just I just struggle to think like of a club like Graham, do you think there are Scottish clubs? Maybe Scotland is a bad example. But do you think there are Scottish clubs that if they need a new manager are looking to major league soccer? Or do you think short of having that existing connection, do you think clubs are always going to kind of look in their surrounding environs, maybe a little bit further abroad to the continent, but not Mm -hmm. across the Atlantic?
3: I think predominantly it's it's the latter. Particularly with Scottish football, we are quite uh, insular in that regard. We do have a couple of... Um, well, we have a couple of our clubs now owned by Americans, and we have another club owned ah, by a Scot who is very much... Uh, he lives in America. Aberdeen uh, are owned by Dave Cormack, who lives in Atlanta and has links with Atlanta United. And we've, uh, Aberdeen have already taken a, a manager from Atlanta United and Stephen Glass. So that, that might be a route. I do think... Um, scottish clubs are looking to mls more in general as we have kind of talked about on the, the americans in action podcast when we ran through a a, a number of them and there, there does seem to be more traffic i wrote a piece for the guardian a couple of years about this there does seem to be increasing traffic between the scottish premiership and mls and that maybe results in some coaching traffic at some point but it hasn't really happened yet
2: so i think what what i end up on is that like if jesse marsh had had Success. If Leipzig were in the top four comfortably, maybe they don't even make it out of the Champions League group. But if they were still playing good soccer, attractive soccer, scoring some goals, I think it does at the very least keep the door more open than it is at present. And so I do feel like that's where I end up feeling a little bit disappointed by the way things went. Is just that if he's still there having success, I think maybe a few more clubs look to Colorado and think, yeah, why not? We'll roll the dice and see what happens. We like this philosophy. Whereas with that door just a little bit more closed, with Marsh not being there, maybe – those heads stay looking at the managers they yeah. would have been looking at anyway, and Sam Allardyce continues to get worse. I,
3: th- I think we can all, we can all debate and discuss how much damage has been caused, but we yeah. can probably all agree that it would have been helpful yeah. if he, you know, no yeah. harm would have been caused had, had <laughs> he been doing well. You know, if there's an American being that one of the best young coaches in Europe and taking Leipzig into the latter rounds of the knockout uh, stage of the Champions League, mm-hmm. That's not going to harm American coaches getting opportunities in in Europe. So it's it such yes, an unfair that-
2: standard, Graham. It's just an unrealistic <laughs> standard for other coaches to have to follow. There we go. I provided the counterpoint.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it is unrealistic. Like that's it's unfair. It's yeah. definitely unfair that there's there seems to be a need for an American coach to spearhead the market. I don't understand why that is the case, but unfortunately, it does. That does seem to be the case. And and I I had hoped Bradley was going to be at the vanguard of American coaches coming over to to Europe more more readily. I then hoped Marsh was going to do that, and I still hope that he might do
2: that, but it, it does feel like a little bit of a setback. I did not fully anticipate this being the question that we would spend probably the most time on, but knowing that Joe and I are on it and that Graham has thoughtful things to say, and that I tend to go long, I should have probably seen this one coming. But with that, I believe we have answered... All of the questions we were asked on this episode. We're going to have another listener questions show tomorrow since we had to take a few weeks off from doing listener questions at the end of 2021. But we're back in 2022 answering a whole bunch of questions. Uh, gentlemen, anything else to be added before we call this one
1: closed? I'm just still thinking about that Julian Nagelsmann longboard. Sorry. That's why I've been quiet for the last couple of minutes. The wheels that's are fair. just too big, guys. It just doesn't Did, make any sense. It doesn't. I just, I, I got it. I can't. <laughs> Did you not get one for Christmas, Joel? Yeah, that's the real root of all this, Graham. Way to see through <laughs> me. You saw through me.
2: <laughs> I think I think what we've learned is that Graham is going to, going to work overtime to find Joe a coaching position at Sterling Albion, and then we can get the the table tennis games, we can get the meat pies and brown sauce, and we can get an American coaching in Scotland. I think we've we've solved this one. For, and longboards, folks. yeah, lost our rifle. That's training the, the first longboards. condition
1: of my contract at Sterling Albion. Will I be provided with a company longboard? <laughs>
2: Always yeah. always a sign that we've gone over an hour oh. when we go into the random nonsense territory. On that note, oh. Joe Lowry and his longboard. Thank you. Or his theoretical longboard, I should say. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, you got it, Taylor. Graham Ruthven, thank you for putting up with me today.
3: <laughs> thanks, Taylor.
2: <laughs> Listeners, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you all again very soon.